did. I, I was playing in a film at Universal, and James Whale was the director of Frankenstein, and uh, he saw me in the makeup, well, rather in the lunchroom, and um, I had my best makeup on, a straight makeup, and what I thought was my best suit. I was playing a different kind of part. And he invited me to his table to have a cup of coffee and said he would like to make a test of me for the monster. And I thought, well, that doesn't speak very well of my nice straight makeup and my good suit. However, I was delighted. And uh, they had a fine makeup man at the studio, a man named Jack Pierce. And he experimented and worked on the makeup all for two or three weeks really before he said now we are ready you can photograph it mm -hmm. and and they liked the makeup the test and i got the part and that's how it started how did you make out with frankenstein did how, you like the, the the person you had to interpret oh yes it was it it, it was a, it was a great challenge and tremendously interesting because here was a completely helpless, inarticulate, lumbering, helpless creature in a strange and hostile world without speech, and he had to communicate to people, and it was a challenge to find some way to do it. How did people react to Frankenstein? Well, the film itself, of course, was an enormous success, mm -hmm. and um, they have made all told, this is Universal, who sort of first made the Frankenstein, They've made all told, I suppose, at least a dozen of them. But I only played the monster in the first three because I felt there wasn't much left to do in the character. It was getting less and less and less. A monster series could be of an appeal to the public. Do you explain the reason of the success of the series? Yes, I think I can. We know that fashions in plays and in films and in stories change. They go in cycles, then they die out, then they come back again. But this kind of story, not, not of necessity the monster, but this kind of story seems to go on forever. And I've often wondered if the real reason isn't that it's the oldest kind of story in the world, really, that it has its roots, very deep in the legends and the fairy tales and the folklore of every race in the world and has a universal appeal. But I think that's why they go on, in, in one form or another. Now, they go on without you because you only made the first three. Don't you regret the monster tales? Uh, no, not really. The monster turned out to be the best friend I ever had. He changed the whole course of my life. I was an obscure and struggling, unknown actor. Then all of a sudden I get this marvellous opportunity handed to me with all the help and assistance that I could ask for. And uh, in my career, my work hasn't stopped since. 32 years later, you are asking me about him. Now, who could ask for anything better than that? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Horror Comics Podcast, Episode 3. I'm Chris. And today we're going to be talking about Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery number 20. This is from 1967. This was a hard one to research. Uh, well, I say research. It's not hard to research. It's hard to get good information on. Um, mainly, who wrote it? Now, you're led to believe, and maybe it's true, but I have a hard time believing that Boris Karloff wrote all of these, but no writer is credited, just the art. So I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and give the art. It's multiple stories, but this covers the whole thing as as far as I can tell. It's George Wilson, Joe Serta, Sal Trapani, Luis Dominguez, Wynn Mortimer, with John D'Agostino and Ben Oda on letters. This was released November 30th, 1967 by Gold Key, and it was 12 cents to issue. 12 cents, uh, or to purchase, 12 cents. That's, uh, <laughs> man, where did those days go? Uh, no, I understand why uh, things go up, but uh, can you imagine? Oh my God, there'd be no end to the madness. Now, talking about Boris Karloff, he was born William Henry Pratt and adopted the name 
Boris Karloff for the stage. He's an English actor who is very prevalent in the horror scene. Well, that's what he's mostly known for. He did pass away at the age of 81 uh, in February of 1969 in England. You, I mean, obviously we know him from his portrayals of Frankenstein. He played the mummy, but he was also in adaptations like The Black Cat, uh, The Raven. He also played uh, Jekyll and Hyde. In 1953, for Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I always liked those those crossovers as a kid uh, with that, and they would have you know Wolfman and Frank and uh, Frankenstein and Dracula and all them kind of come together, uh, and it was always funny and light and whatnot. But it, it was always just cool to kind of get all them together, and it was always pretty funny. So obviously, he was also a big part of the 1966 How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He was the Grinch, and he did the narration. But as far as going back into these comics, the writers. Leo Dorfman was credited as a writer on number five, along with Dick Wood. And number 14, you have Paul Newman and Dick Wood. Number 16, Dick Wood. Some of them would be re, re- reprints. Uh, but writer, he's only cre- I can only find him credited on issue 53 of Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery. He's also listed as artist. I don't have that issue. My comic shop, most of the issues of this are like well over 26 bucks a pop. That's just not something I'm willing to pay at this point. This issue that I have here, for some reason, was only $5. So I was like, okay, to hell with it. I'll get it. But yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I don't know if that is to, yeah, that's all the, there are 97 issues. And those are the only writing credits I can find. So if anyone has any more information on that, uh, or they can find it, or they can Google better than I can, I'm all, I'm all ears. Uh, it's very interesting to me. But my feeling is that the implication is meant to be that, oh, this is Boris Karloff telling you stories. And I just, I don't know. But at the bottom, it says copyright 1967 by Boris Karloff. So maybe that's the understood thing is that he's, uh, that he's doing it. Now, this book is a, it's a, this is a little bit different in the anthology sort of format because you, you do have tales of horror and but it's mixed up by uh, little jokey little jokey things and it's some pretty hilarious um, I think maybe unintentionally hilarious uh, little things here and there but they try to lighten the mood every now and then but what I like about this is and we'll go ahead and get into the story or to the book rather The Model. It was one winter evening in 1913 that Parisian artist David Sant first saw the lovely blonde girl. We see a sad blonde girl next to a waterway and the artist behind her approaching her. Unable to afford a model, the impoverished artist begged the girl to pose for him without payment. She consented. We see them inside the apartment and the portrait being painted. Inspired, the artist worked far into the night. He begged the girl to return for another sitting, but she refused. For weeks afterward, he haunted the streets and cafes of Paris seeking his beautiful dream model, but in vain. When he went to police with her portrait, they took him to her grave. She had been executed a year before for three murders. Now we move on to the main... That's just a simple little... It's a one page. It's literally the inside of the cover, a black and white little short story. Uh, which hey, you gotta you gotta credit them. They weren't. Uh, there's no ads in this book. Uh, not on the back cover. Not in the middle. Not on the front cover. Obviously, I just read that story. So hey, good on them. But now we're gonna move on to the first of the anthology stories, the medium. We see an elderly woman. A young man and a young woman, all connecting hands with a psychic male around a crystal ball. That's Charles, my late husband. I'd, I'd know his voice anywhere. It is Charles. It really is. Listen to me. I have something to say. He is known simply as Ivan, the spiritualist. 
His communication with the dead astonishes all who are foolish enough to believe in his fakery. Each night, Ivan produces the voice of those long dead. Charles, I hear you. I speak to you tonight because I want you to know I'm all right. Then, after the seance is over, How can I ever thank you, Ivan? Charles was here tonight. Thank you, madam. It is nice to know we have been successful. Until next week, then. Later, in the basement of the old brownstone. Great work, Alex. <laughs> I thought Mistress Brent was going to fall off her chair when she heard her late husband's voice. It was beautiful, Ivan. You had him conned all the way. Alexi, standing next to a recording machine, or a reel-to-reel, rather? That's what he's standing next to, a reel-to-reel. Great idea yours to get that tape he made his factory workers just after his last ob- observation. We hear the tape playing. I want you to know I'm all right. My operation was a success, and I shall continue as head of Brent Industries. Pretty neat, huh? Yeah. What did spiritualists do before electronics? Here's your share of tonight's little action. Don't you think it's time I got a bigger slice? After all, quit your grousing. You're just lucky you got a smart brother. Now check out old man Renwick's tape. We'll need it tomorrow. Okay, okay, I'll be ready. And as Ivan walks down the street at night, Maybe it's time I got rid of Alexi. I can get almost anyone to do what he does, and cheaper. What if he is my brother? Well, well, look at that. He sees a sign for a medium spiritualist telling fortunes. He rings the bell. May as well see what the competition is doing. Might learn a few tricks. Now, he probably doesn't talk like this when he's not Ivan the Great or whatever, but I'm just going to keep using that voice for him. Good evening. I was just passing by, and I thought I'd... You are most welcome. Come in. The seance is about to begin. We need a fourth person. Ivan thinks to himself, The old crystal ball bit. What a laugh. This I gotta see. We see a young couple sitting at a table with the medium. A stranger drops in out of the night, just as I predicted. Now we can begin. The young man says, My father passed away just before we were married. I want him to know how happy we are. Can you really contact him? We shall see. I feel a presence in this room. If you are the spirit of this young man's father, make yourself known to us. We see a fog and the young man's father's face in the fog, smiling. Even from beyond, my son, I share your happiness. You've chosen well. Father, Ivan thinks to himself. What in blazes? He must be using trick photography. The medium says, I must go now. Your father is very pleased. And as the fog of the father dissipates, the young man, Father, father! Ivan thinks to himself, Wow, what a gimmick. After the seance, Ivan speaks to the medium. Could I see you alone for a minute? Why, certainly. Listen, I'm going to level with you. We're in the same racket. I'm Professor Ivan. Perhaps you've heard of me. Yes, I've heard of you. I've also heard that you're a fake. It is the likes of you that give spiritualists a bad name. Ah, oh, quit your kidding, Mac. The squares have gone. You're talking to a real pro now. What's the action here? I can produce voices, but actual images stump me. You've got a hidden movie projector? No, no tricks, no gimmicks. Everything you saw is genuine. Now nah, you're trying to con me. Okay. I'm calling your bluff. My father's been dead for 20 years. If you can bring back his spirit, then I believe you. Sit down. They sit down, and the medium places his hands over the crystal ball. Hey, I thought you needed four people for this. Or is that just part of your pitch? In your case, it won't be necessary. Your father has been trying to contact you for years. Then, abruptly... A head appears in a fog coming from the crystal ball. So, we meet again, Ivan. It's been a long time, son. Dad, no, no, I don't believe it. You are evil and corrupt, Ivan. I am ashamed of you. Even now you are scheming to get rid of Alexei, your own brother. It's a trick. It's got to be a trick. It's no trick, my son. You may be a master of fraud and fakery, but this is real. I can prove it to you. See? I can touch you. 
Ivan screams as the ghost of his father touches him. The ghost dissipates. Ivan's on the floor. He's gone. Yes, he's gone. Now, do you believe me? That crystal ball, it must be the real thing. It's the only one left in the entire world. It's been handed down in my family for generations. Yes, it's the real thing. I must have it. I'll pay you anything, anything. I am the last living member of my family. When I die, it will be destroyed. Destroyed? No, let me have it. It is written that no outsider must ever possess the mystic crystal ball. Sorry, Mac, but I can't pass it up. I've got to have it. No, no, you don't know what you're doing. Ah, I won't let you destroy it. I'm hate. I'm taking it with me. It's mine, mine. I'll become more famous. I'll be richer than I've ever dreamed. People will crawl to me on their hands and knees to contact the dead. Ivan is escaping, running up the stairs as we see the body on the floor of the medium. Shortly, Ivan begins to call back the dead. Who shall I bring back? Houdini, the greatest magician who ever lived. Ahead and fog begins to come out of the crystal ball. I am Houdini. How dare you disturb my rest on a mere whim? It's him. It's really him. You are a disgrace to the profession of sorcery. We will not stand for it. Yeah? What are you going to do about it? You are at my beck and call. I did not come alone. Even now, a spirit is breaking through the barrier. Its will is stronger than yours. What's going on? I didn't summon anyone else. You! The spirit of the medium begins to come out of the fog. It is written upon my death. The crystal ball must be destroyed and death to any outsider who tries to possess it. The medium lifts the crystal ball and crashes it into the skull of Ivan. With the breaking of the crystal ball, the spirits vanish. We see police officers on the scene at the body of Ivan. Someone hit him with a crystal ball, chief. Check it out for fingerprints. Must be loaded with them. Yes, there are fingerprints on the broken glass, but the police will never find who put them there unless they are willing to go Beyond the Grave. And that concludes our first story. So uh, it's a silly, fun little romp, uh, but I like this whole de- idea. I, I Actually, yeah, I like the idea of a con man psychic coming across, you know, having him con people, uh, going to check out another psychic to kind of, yeah, learn some tricks and whatnot, and then uh, he runs into the real thing. That's a, that's a cool little... Little premise there. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I really like the art, and I'm I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find the credits for each specific issue, or for this one at least. And it looks like I have one actually. Um, for the very first story, the model, it's the one page story at the very beginning. Uh, the script question mark pencils Joe Serta and inks by Joe Serta. The medium pencils by Bill Molno and inks by Sal Trapani. Trapani. Japani, ah, who knows? Letters, uh, they don't know who did colors. Probably Bill or Sal. Uh, letters by John Duffy. Uh, the following stories: Death and Napoleon's Marshal, which I'm actually uh, the whole Death and Napoleon story is. Um, it's kind of a, it's just a prose kind of history thing. I'm gonna skip that one and go to the actual story, which is Mysteries Beyond the Grave. Which you're gonna hear that a lot this issue. The only credits I can find for this story is Letters by Ben Oda. I don't know how accurate all this is. This is just the first thing I'm finding about each particular story. And, man, (laughs) uh, Monster Museum, I've got nothing for art, script, letters, and the sort of jokey comics in the back. There's nothing for any of those except for letters just say typeset. Yeah, so this is interesting to me. Um, We've got... The Death Bell by Luis, Pencils and Inks by Luis Dominguez. The Sleeping Dragon by Wynne Mortimer. And Letters by Ben Oda. Now, again, no writer on those or colors, just pencils and inks. So it's a, it's a really interesting deal not knowing, uh, <laughs> not knowing credits. Because, you know, nowadays it's just right there on the cover and you go inside to the credits page and you've got a full name and everything. So. Uh, that obviously wasn't as big of a deal as what they were trying to use to sell it, which was obviously Boris Karloff here. So it seemed to be a pretty uh, pretty successful series with 97 issues. And, and I'm, not, I'm not sure if that 97 includes the first two, which I 
think the what I read was the first the first two issues of this series were actually called Boris Karloff Thriller. So it, with issue three, this turned into uh, Tales of Mystery. I don't know if that 97 includes that or if it's actually 99. Well, who cares? I'll, I'll find it out uh, later and, you know, we'll get to it. Uh, I'm trying to lock down because this was collected in vol- at least one volume. I don't know if they ever released the second and third or however many, but um, I'm trying to lock down a decent price for volume one. And that way I can kind of dig, dig into more stories. That's what I have for creepy. Um, I have, uh, you know, several issues, but um, I have all, I have several collected archive editions with a ton of stories, uh, a ton of like it has like four or five full on magazines in it. And um, same thing with Vaults of Horror. So I haven't cracked into those yet. I'm still going with single issues and I got about 200 more single issues I could go into. So I don't know what I'm going to do next issue, but I'll figure it out throughout the week and, and kind of dig around and read some stuff and see what I want to do next. So before I uh, move on to our next story, I'm going to have a little sip of something to warm your insides because it's it's chilly out. It's chilly out tonight. It's dark. It's dreary. It's rainy. It's the perfect time to be recording this. So cheers, everyone. I'm actually enjoying a bourbon myself. So our next story is actually a collection of shorter stories. Mysteries Beyond the Grave. On a bleak April morning in 1858, Paul Geberhardt, an accused murderer, is led to the gallows in the courtyard of a South African prison. But I'm innocent. I swear it before Almighty God. You're hanging an innocent man. That's what most of them claim. But this one's pretty persistent. Two men look at each other, smiling haphazardly as they're about to take a man's life. And as the noose is fixed around Geberhard's neck, You may hang me, rob me of my life, but you will never claim my body. My body you shall not have. That I swear. They ready the noose around his neck, and moments later, at the warden's signal, the trap door drops open with a thud. Paul Geberhard is pronounced dead, and that same day his body is placed in a common prison grave. We've piled boulders atop the coffin, sir, just as you requested. The more the better. Geberhard's vow that they will never have his body is given serious thought. For two months, guards are assigned to watch over his grave. The man is finished. Dead. Why keep us here? Something bothers the officials. Conscience, perhaps. Shortly afterwards, a petty thief is arrested and given vent to a shocking confession. Paul Geberhard was an innocent man. I killed the farmer. Geberhard died for a crime he didn't commit. He was innocent all along. Now, I guess this is maybe the the warden, because you don't see his face again, but... He was at the hanging. He just didn't have any any dialogue. Uh, so he's the man saying he was innocent all along. Actually, I can't remember what voice I used for him. At this point, I've given different loca- accents for like all over the country slash world for the few people that have showed up in this issue, uh, which is supposed to be taking place in South Africa. So, uh, yeah, whatever. We'll see what happens. I mean, there's nothing new. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't practice this. So I just uh, I just kind of attach it to their face. Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. That's what I'm doing. The confession turns out to be the truth, and the prison warden acts promptly. The grave will be reopened and Geberhard's remains will be placed in a proper coffin for reburial. To the very least we can do, says a bystanding guard. The grave is opened, and the heavy boulders atop the coffin are removed. But when the nails that hold down the coffin lid are finally pried loose, why, it's empty, we see an open gasket that's empty. Only the shroud remains. But how? He swore we could never claim his body. He, He vowed it with his last breath. Another mysterious happening in the case of Louis Panier. The year is 1935. The place, a native cemetery on the island of Haiti. We see a man standing in a field with a lot of markers, sticks that have uh, symbolic dolls attached to them, made of straw. A man pulls one off the stick. A most interesting piece. I must add it to my collection. But as Panier turns to leave... 
we see a native man. Put it back, sir. I beg you. Take it. You'll bring powerful magic on you. A curse from beyond the grave. That's probably not what people from Haiti sound like, but what did I say earlier? Curses? Magic? They can't touch me, old man. And when Paneer returns home with his prize, we see him placing it atop his fireplace, it seems, with other similar souvenirs. There, it fits perfectly. A week later, a fearful tropical storm lashes the area with savage fury. Drawn by the storm's fury, Paneer opens the door when suddenly we see him struck by lightning, killed by the bolt. It is decided that Paneer's remains must be returned to his native France. Ooh, so I really didn't give him the right accent. It's said that the voodoo curse can claim its victims beyond the grave. Naturally, it is just native belief. All the same, it's better that he will be buried elsewhere. We see his casket being lowered onto a ship. Upon its arrival in France, the body is taken to the family vault outside Lyons. We've seen him loading the body, the casket, into a crypt. Several nights later, as the cemetery caretaker makes his rounds, <coughs> is heard from within side the crypt. The caretaker turns towards the scream. Mon dieu, the dick cries out. When authorities are summoned, the bolts and padlocks on the vault door are firmly in place. Open them immediately. That's like more German. I'm going to stop with the thing. I think I got the French guy down okay, maybe. I'm going to go back to what it was. At once, sir. And when the massive vault door is thrown open, the casket is smashed, the body gone. But where? By whom? I, I dare not guess. The answer must lie beyond the grave itself. I just wanted that guy to be Adam West. God rest his soul. And that is the end of that little story of Beyond the Graves. Um, it's a fun little... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that. It's strange to have, uh, you know. There's no real setup of like here are tales of things from the. You get it, I guess, from the title. But uh, I just wasn't expecting them to be so short and to not really, not really, not have resolve. But they just they go to the next thing really quickly and kind of without, um, yeah, without a lot of buffer. Which again, they don't have a lot of pages. But they could have had more pages if they would have done away with Monster Museum. Our Monster Museum is a pretty busy place these days. What with one monster after another claiming recognition and trying out, trying to outscare each other. We hope you enjoy this collection. First, we have the lobster monster, which looks like a T-Rex mixed with a puppy dog. It's all green. Its tail has a half moon at the tip, and it has purple lobster claws. It crushes ocean liners in its claws. Then we have the suction tree. Devours all birds, animals, and curious humans drawn into its mouth. And it looks like a tree with arms and hands and a mouth like a sucker fish. Then we've got the, the auto, auto eater. eater. It empties cars before eating them. We see people falling from a car that's being eaten by the auto eater. And the rock of a thousand eyes hypnotizes victims to do its evil bidding. And we see a rock with not quite a thousand eyes. Oh, and the next is a page of jokes submitted by readers, I guess. And I'm not going to read them because some of these people need to be hunted down. The next we have Chuckle Time, which is a series of four comics that I don't really know. I mean, it's kind of like if you ever read The Far Side or a little quick, it's just like comic strips like that. These are just one panel comics with a little caption. Man, it's awful. Then uh, there's another one. It's a mini comic about a guy building a doghouse. He can't get it right, so he uses the box the doghouse came in, cuts a hole in it, and that's what the doghouse will be from now on. We see the dog sleeping comfortably in it because it's a dog and it doesn't care. But on to the next story. The Death Bell. In a small Italian village, amid the ruins of an ancient fortress, there stands a bell tower. The bell hangs silent, for there is no way for mortal man to ring it, yet it rings. And when it does, its toll means death. Death, 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 death. We see a spooky night with a full moon. Villagers in the streets. A woman yells, The bell! It rings! Another man, Tonight someone will die! Another man running, My, my family! I must go to them! As the bell tolls, death visits the home of Joseph Carlotti. Mamma mia! 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's what he says. He's like, I don't know which one is Joseph Carlotti, the guy, or I, I, can't, I don't know who's dead in this bed, but there's a priest, looks like a policeman, and a man with his hands over his eyes uh, at the edge of the bed yelling, Mama Mia, which I can't imagine that that's what I'd be yelling uh, next to a dead loved one. Regardless of who they are, I guess maybe if it was someone that I really hated uh, so much so that I didn't care that they were dead, I might go to the hospital and yell, Mama Mia, and then run away for fear of death. At the moment of death, the bell stops and is motionless, as if controlled by some mysterious force. But life must go on, and Joseph works hard at his vegetable truck. Some zucchini to go away the pasta, signora! I'm not going to do that the whole time. I don't know if this is the same Joseph that we just saw where death visited his home. I mean, we go from Joseph Carlotti. We don't see his face. Now we're seeing Joseph. I'm imagining it's the same guy, but we don't know who died. But regardless, life must go on and Joseph works hard at his vegetable truck so that soon he can marry the beautiful Maria. Maria, my love. Dear Joseph, you work so hard but I have a surprise for you. I work hard to make money so that we can be married. What's the surprise? I have taken a job as a secretary. The extra money will enable us to have our wedding even sooner. Will I see you tonight? No, Joseph. I promised Carlo I'd work late tonight. Besides, it's extra money. Yeah, Carlo is a rich and fancies himself a lady killer. Sorry. Carlo is rich and fancies himself a lady killer. I don't trust him. Then will I see you tomorrow night? Uh, that'll be up to Carlo. He's the boss, and I do want to make a good impression. Night after night, Maria continues to work late as Joseph becomes more and more suspicious. He's standing outside the window of where she works, watching them standing close to each other in the window. How can I be sure this is all work? It may be Carlo's way of taking Maria from me. Carlo is charming and clever. His good looks have turned many a pretty head. If this is some kind of trick... Later, we see Joseph spying on them walking what looks like arm in arm, but maybe not. No, it's not clear. But they're in the park, and she's laughing at something that he, I guess, said. Joseph thinks to himself, the way she smiles at him used to be reserved for me. The next night, Joseph accidentally pa- Accidentally. Yeah, right. Bullshit. The next night, Joseph accidentally passes a small, intimate Italian cafe and sees, so, they call this working late? This is too much. Inside the restaurant, Carlo says, Thank you, Maria, for working so late. The least I can do is buy you dinner. Thank you, Carlo. The extra money will go toward my wedding to Joseph. Ah, Joseph, you should have bought one of those listening devices they've been selling in those EC comics, huh? Secret spy devices, huh, Joseph? Insane with jealousy, Joseph returns to his truck. So, it is true. Carlo's taking Maria away from me. I could kill him for that. Joseph is driving. Carlo must die. He's now driving up on the both of them crossing the street. It'll be so easy. An unfortunate accident. Don't think you thought that one through there, Joseph. Uh, vehicle manslaughter is still a thing. In the wreckage, Joseph accidentally hit Maria. He gets out and he's running towards the body. Maria! No! No! Minutes later at the hospital. The doctor's talking to Carlo. Joseph is sitting with his face in his hands on a bench nearby. Doctor says, If she lives, it'll be a miracle. Joseph, the death bell. If it rings, Maria will die. I've got to stop it. Painfully, Joseph claws his way to the top of the mysterious tower where no man has set foot for centuries. He reaches the top. It's it's starting to move. As if controlled by some mysterious force, the giant begins to sway. You devil! You can't ring! I won't let you! Maria will not die! Joseph jumps and latches on to the clapper or tongue of the bell. The bell begins to chime, with the clapper slamming Joseph against the walls. With a will of its own, the bell seems determined to toll another death. Joseph cries in pain, until finally it stills itself. We see Joseph fall from the tongue of the bell. Back in the hospital, Maria lives. It's uncanny. She pulled through. Carlo says, The bell did not ring, doctor. I must tell Joseph. 
He and Maria are going to be married, and Joseph is 100% deathly not dead. I added that last part. The bell did not ring, my friends. But the people of the village could not hear the muffled sounds coming from the tower as the death bell claimed another victim. So that was a fun little issue, a little snafu there at the end. He trades his life for the life of Maria, um, which... I don't think he was expecting to die, but, you know, in the end, it is a very, it was a heroic act. Uh, but at the same time, I think that cancel, it's canceled out because he also freaking ran over her. So, uh, you know, you know uh, I think he's just kind of canceled out. He's probably in purgatory or something now. Um, I don't know. This was in 1967. I don't know how long purgatory gives people uh, in the contract to pray their soul out of hell or purgatory or whatever. So maybe somebody can research that and let me know. Maybe too late for old Joseph. Oh, yeah, and also this is fictional, so there was no Joseph in the bell tower. But I actually, I, I kind of liked this ending. I thought it was a fun kind of deal. Um, I, I don't know. I say fun. I thought it was a neat kind of deal where he climbs up and he's going to stop the bell from ringing. I don't know. I thought it was cool. Never seen that before. And he's just getting slammed around by a bell. I, you know, I, I don't know. I could see this being a cool, like, Hitchcock kind of um, kind of move in a, in a movie. It'd be kind of cool to see. But I don't know if I mentioned this, but the narrator, like, okay, much like the Crypt Keeper or the Vault Keeper or Uncle Creepy or whoever, um, it actually is an illustration of Boris Karloff, which is kind of cool because his head will pop up and he like, kind of leans in. Um, kind of like on Mortal Kombat when the whoopsie guy comes in. It's kind of like that, except for he doesn't say whoopsie or whatever they say in that game. Um it's, I don't know. I thought that was a cool aspect because I'm just going to tell you, this is the first issue of this book that I've read, uh, and I just bought it this week because, like I said, it was the only one that was even nearly affordable uh, to me at this particular time. So that, I thought that was a neat little deal. So the next story we're going to go off to, and this guy, I'm telling you, this main character, or, well, it's two main characters, but the, the male... Uh, He's really picky and choosy about which legends he believes, and you'll know what I mean when we get into The Sleeping Dragon. Meet Dirk Blair, explorer and author, whose lively books on legends and folklore are always based on diligent research. He travels to the ends of the earth, tracking down the source of ancient legends to see whether they have any basis in fact. There it is, Helen. Mount Kimo, the final resting place of the Sumba Dragon. Dirk, I wish you wouldn't go through with it. I'm frightened. I gotta remember that voice. I like that one. I have a strange feeling there's something waiting for us up there. Something terrible. That's exactly why we're going. According to legend, and remember him saying according to legend right there? I'm gonna put a little reminder there. The Sumba Dragon is sleeping on that mountain until the gods summon him to come down again. If there's any truth behind the tale, we may find his carcass preserved in the ice. The next day, they begin the long journey up the side of the giant mountain. Hold on, Helen. It gets pretty tricky from here on. This isn't the first mountain I've climbed, Dirk. Jesus, Helen, calm down. Near the top, Dirk realizes his dream when he sees... Helen, look! The Sumba dragon! I found it! Help me clear the snow away. We see the paw of a dragon buried under ice. As they remove the snow, we see the full dragon's body perfectly preserved. What a find! He's perfectly preserved! Just as if he's waiting for the gods to speak and call him forth! Ugh! Rumble, rumble, we hear in the back. What's that noise? The voice of the gods? Helen, that's only a legend! Um, Dirk, eh, which legend do you want to believe, huh? The dragon being up there? The legend of the dragon that you just found and now the legend of the gods maybe is just so implausible? Anyway, it's the volcano erupting! Take cover, quick! They're running down the side of the mountain on a trail as lava flies all around them. We see a gigantic explosion from the top of the volcano. With a final rumble, the angry mountain becomes silent. Only the sound of the wind remains. Oh, Dirk, what's the use? As long as we're still alive, we've got a chance. For if I'm not Dirk McManley Steel, I may have added that last part. Whew, it's over. Thank heaven it was only a slight eruption. Yeah, go two panels back, Dirk. It wasn't a slight. That whole that thing could blow up fucking half of Arizona. Look! The 
the dragon's exposed the heat from the lava. It melted the ice. I've got to get a picture of this. Oh, shit. That was Dirk saying that, not her. Okay, let's go back. Look! The dragon's exposed. The heat from the lava melted the ice. I've got to get a picture of this. We see the dragon standing like 30 feet in front of him. His tongue, like, it's, I guess he can kind of extend his tongue out to grab because it's forked, as you would expect. Uh, it's, uh, it extends out towards them, and it, you know, we get another, yeah! from Dirk, which that's like a popular scream back then, and I don't really understand it. You know, why, I, 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 I don't know, probably not. That's more of a Three Stooges kind of thing, but we'll see. They start running from the dragon. <clears throat> I'm back in character now. <clears throat> they run from the dragon. It's alive! Run, Helen, run! It's after us! We can't escape! A cave. I remember a cave not far from here. If we can only get there in time. Hurry, Dirk! She's inside the cave. Um, you know, she's pretty well protected. I'm coming! Yeah, get back in the cave as far as you can go. I found us! Get down! We see the dragon's face entering the cave, but it can't quite fit. Its tongue is doing the extending thing again, and uh, Dirk is kicking the tongue out of the way and uh, doing what he can to avoid it. Get back! Is he gone? Yes, but for how long? Cautiously, Dirk moves his way toward the entrance of the cave. I've got to stop him, somehow, or we'll never get out of here alive. Years of exploring have taught Dirk many things. He knows that a snow-capped mountain such as this, a pistol shot might bring an avalanche. They see the dragon down at the bottom of the hill. There he is, that massive snow above him. Gives me an idea. Dirk draws a gun fires at the ice and snow above the dragon. An instant later, the avalanche buries the beast under tons of snow. Dirk, the dragon's dead! Dead? I wonder. Maybe it's only waiting for the gods to speak and summon it to life again. Because of Dirk Blair... Oh, his name wasn't McManley Steel. Blair, that's right. Because of Dirk Blair's reputation for integrity, most people believe his photos of the dragon frozen in the ice are authentic. However, his latest book does not mention the dragon's coming to life. After all, he does have a reputation to maintain. I was trying to figure it out earlier. I was reading and it was like, so people have the photos, but he doesn't mention it in the book. And it, I, like, it wasn't clear in my head, but actually, so what's going on is he included it like, oh, I found this frozen dragon, but he didn't include the sort of uh, fantastical tale of being chased by the dragon and having to like cover it in snow again I guess probably for fear of like ridicule or for I don't know like having I don't know I don't know what the deal was there to you know I guess leave out the violent encounter with the dragon and just say hey I found this cool preserved uh dragon so that's I get that now I understand uh I, th I thought this was a fun little story I mean it's it goes out it's more of like you know uh it's more of like a Fan not fantasy even it's like it's just a normal for the time modern day setting uh and they just find a preserved dragon and they have a little tussle with it and i thought that was kind of cool um and it didn't really end tragically it was just kind of back where they started but they actually witnessed it being alive but it's just between dirk and uh jesus what's her name helen jesus christ helen get it together but that was, uh, I don't know, I had a good time with it. I'm going to tell you what the thing is that I haven't really talked about too much in this. The art, I, I love it. The art is not lacking. Uh, you know, it's not like, it's no Steve Ditko or uh, of, of the like, but it, it is great. It's great comic art, especially when you get to these mystery kind of comics and the dragon is, and the dragon's kind of cartoony, but, you know, it is what it is. It's great art. And Boris Karloff, I mean, he looks like an older Boris Karloff. They can't decide here whether or not they want him to have the mustache or not. But, um, you know, so you get all get all kinds, except for young Boris Karloff. And that's fine. But I like it. These kind of things are fun to me, especially when it's like this, when it has, like, little pages of, like, one random story that's just kind of like, oh, here's a little quick thing. Because on the inside of the back cover, well, this is kind of strange. This is... Picture Dictionary, C, Chimpanzee. And it just kind of gives you facts about chimps. So, that's, I guess they're trying to go with like kind of an educational thing. You had some comedy, or what I should say is attempts at comedy uh, in, in other pages. Uh, it's, so, it's, it's a little odd. Um, 
Because like the the more mystery or horror ones don't seem they're not like vulgar or crude or gory, but they just still still don't really seem aimed at children necessarily. But maybe they are because again they're not like it's not like you're reading the most gruesome issue of Tales from the Crypt. So, uh, but then like the comedy is is very very like what I uh, I don't get it. But our last little story here is much like the model in the very beginning. In 1936, in a Michigan hospital, a critically ill patient sees a portent of his death in a bedside mirror. We see a man looking into a mirror. In the reflection is a skull. Hysterical, the patient is sure his death is prophesied. As proof, he declares that no one can move the prophetic mirror. Within moments, the patient is dead. But when a skeptical nurse tried to lift the mirror... It remains immovable. The hospital authorities tr- try ice picks, crowbars, but for 24 hours, the mirror challenges all attempts to move it. The next day, of its own accord, the mirror flies off the table. No one knows what weird force had made the mirror immovable. And that closes out our issue. Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery, number 20. I love the cover art, and the cover art is the same as the back cover, except it doesn't have the actual, there's an actual photo of Boris Karloff and the price and all that whatnot. On the back, it's actually just the art, and I love that. It's a, it's a cool, again, kind of going back to the idea of those creepy covers and eerie, the more painting kind of, kind of effect. Um, that's what this is, too. And I'm actually looking forward to getting more of these issues of Boris Karloff. Because um, it's fun. I, I like it a lot. And uh, it's this one that I, again, I haven't been able to afford, but I'm sure I can find, I'm sure I can find cheaper versions, unfortunately, and for my comic shop. But that's, I don't think they're unfairly pricing them because I've looked up prices, but I've also found cheaper versions of the, uh, I can, I can get basically the volume one of uh, this series um, for cheaper than some of these issues. So I think I'm going to do that and uh, hopefully come back around to this series uh, in the near future. Overall, though, I enjoyed this book. I could do without the comedy bits, which I know I didn't really get into uh, much, and I could do without the Monster Museum, which I did go over. Uh, those were the things that were kind of like, I don't know if they were trying to fill a page count. Um, they were like, oh, let's just do something silly for the kids, you know, for the kids. But, uh, and again, I'm curious to like dig more into and research this book and figure out, you know, was Boris, I just, I cannot imagine Boris Karloff was sitting down and writing every one of these comics. Because even when I'm looking into like his biography and stuff, you can find stuff about his movies and his radio. I can't find anything about his involvement with these comics. Um, It's almost like they were just like, hey, I think this might sell if this has your face on it. So can we just use your name? You'll get paid. And we'll have a ghostwriter do it. We'll just put by Boris Karloff. And uh, so I'm going to look into that. If I figure anything else out, I will let you all know. But until then, I've got to go figure out what book we're going to do next. I'm thinking I'm going to go maybe a little bit more gruesome, maybe something a little more uh, digging into that pre-code. And coming up here shortly, I'm going to be doing Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, The Greening of Gotham which I know isn't straight horror, but Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing is incredible. There's some great horror in there that I will be getting into. Greening of Gotham uh, may actually be my first episode with a guest. So the format might be a little bit different. That's not really one I want to try to do voices for because it's not quite as silly. It's it's actually a really cool story. If you're into Swamp Thing, if you're into Batman, uh, it's, a, it's a cool, cool deal there, but still kind of with a horror element to it with Swamp Thing being there. So... That's coming soon, not next, uh, necessarily, unless something changes. But thank you all for being here. Thank you all for listening. If you want to get in touch about anything, if you want to send in mail, I can read mail on the show. And I would love to hear from you. It's You can get in touch with me at uh, my email is horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. And on Twitter, horrorcomicspod is the handle. I'd love to hear from you. Um, give me a follow. I'll give you a follow back. Um, as long as you have a profile picture and it isn't like, you know, that your, your, your profile isn't like triplex.pix.chat.com, come see all of our nudes. I'm probably not going to follow you back. But if that's your profile, you're probably not listening because you're not real. 
Thank you all again for listening. Thanks for bearing with me. And I hope you enjoyed it. And again, please get in touch if you have suggestions. I actually got some uh, suggestions uh, today, actually, from Comic Book Rundown, who is, uh, I've gone back and forth with Comic Book Rundown on my other podcast, DC Comics Squadcast. They're great. You can follow them at Comic Rundown. But they were suggesting uh, Lock and Key and a book called Infidel. And I've actually heard of those, and I've never... I've never read them, and so now I want to go get them because uh, I've heard a lot about them. They're always on like the best horror comics lists and whatnot, uh, or for modern day horror comics. So I'm gonna go check those out, and if uh, you know, if I am moved, I might put them on the show. We'll see. But thanks for the suggestion, uh, comic book rundown, and also today I picked up Tales from the Black Circle. Uh, it's written by Sam Hart, but the art is by Trevor Markwart. Markwart. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Who uh, was actually one of the first people to follow and interact with me on Twitter for this podcast. So I wanted to give that a shout out. Um, I just picked it up today. I'm excited to dig in. I kind of flipped through. The art is awesome. Uh, So that's where I'm like really ready to dig in tonight. Uh, Once everybody goes to bed and I can just pop up the old iPad and and get to reading. Um, I'm very excited looking through the art. It's got a very old school feel to it. So if you're into those those old school horror comics like we're talking about here, um, well, it has not on this episode necessarily, but it's got the feeling of some of those really more creepy uh, uh, books and the illustration, it, the, the art is fantastic. So I'm very excited to get into it. So uh, uh, thanks to Trevor for interacting. Thanks to everybody for following on Twitter and listening. I appreciate it. You all have a good evening and please, please, please keep reading horror comics. And as always, keep it spooky.